electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome, everybody. Here's what's ahead. The markets are struggling for direction today as investors look to put the three-day tumble firmly in the rearview mirror. But we're down 122 right now on the Dow. Goldman just out with a big call on Q3 GDP. It might interest you. We're going to have the very latest on that in just a moment. Plus, from Walmart to movie theaters to Home Depot, we're going to talk with the CEO of one of the country's biggest real estate landlords about what his tenants are seeing with this economy. And furniture pays off. Big bets on betting. A lot of money is riding on the NFL tonight and pumping up profits. It's all ahead of us today and maybe some pictures of work from home. But let's begin with Dom Chu and today's move lower, Dom. I have a feeling like we will see some of those in our rapid fire segment. But let's talk to the, turn to the markets right now because... As Kelly pointed out, we have struggled to find some kind of direction. We've seen either side of unchanged today. But as you can see here so far, at this moment in time, we are looking at just fractional losses for the major indices. The Dow down about a half a percent, similar percentage move for the S&P 500. And the Nasdaq outperforming only down about one quarter of one percent. By the way, the Dow and the S&P still currently sit right now about six percent away from their recent record high. So watch that one. The other place we're going to take a look is Signs of stress elsewhere in the market. We're not seeing as many of them right now, certainly not in corporate credit. These two ETFs track investment grade and high yield or junk bonds in the marketplace. And as you can see, they've been fairly steady over the course of the past couple of months here, despite the fact that we saw a huge pullback in tech stocks. Corporate credit continues to be one of those places to watch for other signs of potential stress. We're not seeing it yet. And then check out these names, the ones that have been under stress as of late. Zoom Video, Adobe, Salesforce. These cloud and software type related names, work from home names, have been among the hardest hit after large runs higher. But still, 1.5% gains in a down taper Zoom. Adobe up 1.5%. And then a 1% gain for Salesforce. These stocks could be some of those indicators, Kelly, for whether sentiment shifts back to the negative side. We'll watch those types of names. I'll send things back over to you. That's a great point, Dom. Thank you, sir. With the bulls and the bears fighting for control of this market, what should investors do right now? And what would be our signals that the sell-off is over? Things like Dom was just talking about. Well, Goldman is out in just the past hour with its forecast on Q3 GDP. And guess what? They now see a 35% rebound. They're 14 points above consensus. Joining me now to talk more about this, Abe Deshpande is Chief Investment Officer at Center Stone Investors, and Jim McDonald is Chief Investment Strategist at Northern Trust. Good to see you both, Abe. I'll start with you. I, I, I think the question shaping up is whether the economic data, if Goldman's right about how strong the third quarter might be, are confirming what the stock market has been telling us for the past couple months. Yeah, I mean, uh, from the bottom up anyway, you're starting to see uh, obvious signs of uh, recovery. Um, the, you know, the question mark continues to be what happens in the, you know, in the fall with the potential flu season and all that stuff. But, uh, the, you know, the trend line is positive. So whether it's 35, 25 or 50, I have no idea. But as long as the trend lines are moving in the right direction, um, we're happy with that. 
Yeah, ha happy, but at the same time, people will say, well, okay, great, but, you know, we, the stock market's still going to tell us where we're going from here. We still have, you know, some names that look pretty overvalued. There's still a disparity between whether you stick with the stay-at-home trade or pivot. Abe, look at the performance of Caterpillar yesterday at a two-year high. So how would you, what would your advice be to investors? Where would you be positioning right now? Well, I'd separate the short term from the long term. The long term looks increasingly good, like we're back on track again. Short term, you know, you have the election to deal with. The stock market, generally speaking, doesn't like change. It doesn't mind uncertainty. It doesn't like change. Almost every time that the incumbent loses power, the stock market goes down in anticipation of that. So the next, and, you know, I think people are just, not, investors are just now starting to pay attention to the uh, to, to election. So I wouldn't be surprised if there was some just, you know, continued volatility uh, through the election. But long term, um, I'd be, you know, I'd be, I'd be kind of more, more I favor more uh, sort of the older economy cash flow time that gem generating companies. Uh, the tech names have had sort of a there was a kind of an epic <laughs> bubble there or whatever you want to call that. But I think at one point Tesla was eight times more valued, highly valued than what my best case <laughs> valuation was for just a year ago. Hmm. So I mean there was clearly um, a lot of froth. But the uh, froth did not extend into the general market itself. I mean, the average stock is still well below what, where it was a few years ago. Centerstone were value investors, so yeah. we're increasingly more favoring those types of businesses. As long as the long term con continues to look positive, we're, we're, we're confident about the future. Yeah, and values, as we were talking about yesterday, coming off one of its worst quarters, one of its worst decades, really in quite some time. So, you know, if ever there were a time to get into an unfavored area, this would be it. Jim, let me turn to you. And you guys also have come out with a bunch of projections about growth and about the market. And the bottom line is you see kind of this 2.6%, this middling growth um, as we kind of move out past the pandemic. Does that support a stock market, uh, stock market returns like we've experienced in the past or not? Well, those are five-year forecasts, Kelly, and we do expect growth to be relatively slow over the next five years due to global growth restructuring. We've got a lot of debt outstanding and demographics are aging, but we do expect inflation to stay relatively low. Stock valuations being on the higher side mean that you're likely to get lower returns going forward. So our expectation for a 60-40 portfolio, which has delivered 6.2% over the last five years, is it'll deliver about 3.9 over the next five. One asset class we raised our forecast for was private equity, and we reduced our expectation for emerging market equities. Okay. And let me also welcome Brian Reynolds into the conversation. He's the chief market strategist at Reynolds Strategy. Brian, it's good to see you. You know, you've been warning for the last month or two that we needed, uh, that stocks could kind of get over their skis uh, for a little while, but then we'd have this correction. Where are we in terms of innings here, do you think? Well, we, pu we published a report yesterday um, saying that we've been expecting a correction after a new high, and we think that correction has begun. Probably last a couple of months. It's not a 2008 type of disaster. It's a correction that was seen time and again in the last 11 years of that bull market. And we think that once it runs its course, probably in a month or two, we think that's investable. Well, let, let's dwell for the, oh, on what you said there for the first part, Brian, because a lot of people would say the correction, yeah, it was three days, it's over. We were down 10% peak to trough, that's it. Why do you think this could have uh, some more legs to it? Well, this run up in stocks over the summer was driven largely by retail, not the only factor, but a large factor of retail investors buying risky call options, betting that the stock market's going to go up. If we cross below the S&P 3260 area, I think they're going to suffer margin calls. 
I think their brokers are going to say, you have to put up more money or we're going to close out your option positions. And I think that leads to a bigger downturn. Again, not like 2008, more like the fourth quarter of 2018. And I think that's going to be investable. But while we're on that downslope, I think people better serve just waiting and letting the market come to them rather than trying to chase things higher. That's fascinating. Does anybody want to offer a, a counter view? I'll, be, I'll go back to you. Um, you know, we're, I'm, I'm, I guess I don't have much of a view on the short term. I think there's the one thing I would, I would agree with was is that this is not a 2008 scenario. Um, the other thing I think is very important to understand that and to point out that the index is not necessarily representative of the average stock out there. The average stock did not have a huge run up after the um, after the uh, March cr- decline. Um, and m- as you all know, uh, much of the uh, the run-up has been dominated by a few stocks. But my only point is that it's the other 95% of the market around the world, not just the United States. I mean, international markets are super cheap. Uh, they're going through an industrial revival as we speak. They've already had the turnaround. In fact, that started last year. Okay. Um, and then we had this uh, sort of uh, uh, this, this uh, interruption. But, you know, it's, it's kind of like we're, we're in an airplane. Um, we're confident in the crew cruising around 30,000 feet, and then suddenly, we, with, despite our technology and all our experience, we run straight into a thunderstorm that came from nowhere. And, of course, no one's wearing seatbelts. So, inevitably, there's some damage. There's some, you know, there's some injuries. Yeah. Everyone's mad. But the fact is, everything got through the storm, and we can already see the end of it. Yeah. So, I would just separate kind of like what in the next couple of months with what looks like really good, you know, a, a good environment for investing. I don't know about socially and all, but for investing over the next many years. And the, which is basically what Brian was saying as well, you know, take this opportunity to as an entry point. So, Jim, I'll give you the last word because Abe mentioned that he thinks international stocks are super cheap. Why are you more cautious on emerging markets in particular over the next couple of years? Yeah, we're more uh, cautious on the outlook for China over the next five years. We think that the direction they're taking in managing their economy is not the best for long-term economic growth that's probably good for the current party staying in power or the current leadership staying in power. But we don't think that the valuation case is all that compelling. The composition of emerging market indexes isn't as compelling as the U.S., for example. They've got a lot more in the financials and materials and energy space. So the historical premium that emerging market stocks have delivered has been 2.4%. We only see that being about 0.6% over the next five years. All right. Well, there you go. Thank you all today. Jim McDonald, Brian Reynolds, and Abe Deshpande talking about these markets. Now, you may remember this moment in April of last year when Democratic Representative Al Green of Texas put the CEOs of seven major banks on the spot about diversity at their companies. Is your bank likely to have a female or person of color within the next decade? Kindly extend a hand into the air. Two, three, four, five. All right, five. And one of them on the left of your screen there was City CEO Michael Corbett, among the men who raised their hands and has now lived up to that promise. City announcing today that Jane Frazier will take over as CEO when Corbett retires in February. That makes her the first woman to run a major U.S. bank. Wilford Frost is here for a closer look at her path at City Wealth. Hey, Kelly, uh, as you said, a watershed moment. Uh, And Jane Fraser has had an impressively diverse banking background. She joined Citi as an investment banker in 2004. 
She came from McKinsey, where she was a partner. She'd previously worked at Goldman Sachs uh, also. At City, she's been head of M&A, CEO of the private bank, CEO of the Latin American region, and most recently CEO of the Global Consumer Bank, uh, which is also her current role. Uh, she took it up in October 2019 when she was also elevated to the rank, the title of president. That effectively made her heir apparent to Mike Corbett, uh, though most did not expect a 2020 transition announcement. The timing's in part uh, because of COVID, not so much the now, but uh, the chance for a new leader to control all of the strategy changes, of which there could be many, as the company emerges from 2020, emerges from COVID. She's relatively unknown on Wall Street, at least for someone about to lead one of the nation's biggest banks. And so her first public comments on strategy will certainly be closely followed. Fraser becomes, as you said, Kelly, the first female CEO of a major U.S. bank and a major moment that is for Wall Street as a whole. Uh, and City uh, and its board deserve credit for that. And the fact that Fraser's addition to the board today uh, means that 47 percent are now women, 19 percent, by the way, are diverse. When Corbett became CEO, only one of his direct reports was female. Today, six of 16 are, 37 and a half percent. Uh, that's, uh, of course, the important point on the diversity background, Kelly, though I did uh, speak to someone at the company who uh, thought that uh, Jane would uh, be amused for me to also point out that she's also the first British CEO of a oh, major US Oh, no. Bank. Oh, here we go. <laughs> I, can't, I hope she goes on Squawk Box someday when you and Joe and he can just give everybody a hard time about their accent. Well, it's, it'd be different and deserves less of a hard time than my accent because she's <laughs> Scottish. But, uh, oh, but there we go. Uh, even better. Well, if I, I have many thoughts on this, but I, I just want to show the, the which, it, by the way, my, my thoughts really go back to a lot of the self-reflection that happened after 0708 when there were women like Erin Callan who ascended to nearly the top of these banks at precisely the wrong time. Mm -hmm. And this idea that, you know, is there some cautionary move there? Is Are they going to be able to, you know, successfully navigate these firms? And that'll be a question, obviously, for her to answer over the next several years period of time. And it goes back also to the stock price. I mean, Citi is at 51. So correct me if I'm wrong. Split adjusted. It basically has not budged in a decade, right, since the crisis? Well, the immediate aftermath of the crisis was a terrible period of introspection for, for City. They failed multiple stress tests. And so immediately after the crisis, it would have declined quite sharply under Vikram Pandit before when Corbett took over in uh, 2012. The first couple of years had very strong performance uh, under Corbett. And, and that w would be what you say would say was the best part of his tenure, was uh, inheriting a bad hand, uh, really improving the risk management so that they no longer failed things like the stress tests, giving uh, the bank more cohesion, direction, slimming down some of the uh, unnecessary parts and giving it a bit of focus. Once he did that initial hard work, I I'd say the part that perhaps uh, lagged some of the other most comparable big banks, Bank of America, J.B. Morgan, to their business model was then sort of grinding higher top-line growth, grinding higher returns, uh, from there. So uh, 6% ROE when he took over to 12% now. That's an impressive turnaround. But last year, high teens uh, ROEs for JP Morgan and Bank of America. So if you look at it over his entire tenure, the eight years, just behind the KBW Banks Index, but quite a long way behind mm. Bank of America and JP Morgan. All right, that's fair. Uh, Wilf, thank you so much for bringing that to us. Wilfred Frost, we appreciate it. Take a quick break. Still ahead from Home Depot to 7-Eleven and AMC, Realty Income's portfolio of property spans all areas of the economy. So who's holding up right now and who's continuing to struggle? We'll speak with the CEO about that ahead. Plus, 
anything but quick. We'll tell you why this motto helped RH blow past earnings and soar today. Restoration hardware up 24%. And the educational evolution amid the pandemic has given one under the radar name a lift. Analysts think it has a 65% rally ahead of it. This is today's mystery chart. In fact, the CEO will join us ahead. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Businesses are still struggling to reopen six months after COVID-19 shut down the economy. The realty income rate is witnessing this disparity in the recovery. With its rental properties, which span 49 states, Puerto Rico and the UK, tenants include both essential retailers, the likes of Walgreens, Kroger and Home Depot, and those deemed non-essential, like AMC theaters. Joining me for more is Sumit Roy. He is the CEO of Realty Income. Sumit, it's a pleasure to have you here. Overall, what would you say is the state of the economy right now? Thank you for having me, Kelly. Um, so to understand the impact to our company, I'll briefly provide a bit of context. Uh, while we are one of five REITs in the S&P 500 that primarily owns retail properties, I want to draw a distinction on the type of retail properties we own, which are single tenant net lease properties, which means our gross margins are almost 100%. More importantly, the vast majority of our tenant registry consists of essential retailers, just like you mentioned. Mm-hmm that operates in industries with non-discretionary or low price point component to their business. Our top retail tenants are names like Walgreens, 7-Eleven, Dollar General, and Walmart. These are tenants that are holding up well or in some cases experiencing tailwinds during this pandemic. Um, I would suggest that our portfolio has performed well given the circumstances. And for the month of August, we collected around 94% of the contractual rent due to us. Wow. The one industry in our portfolio that has been disproportionately impacted is the theater industry, which represents less than 6% of our revenue and where our exposure is almost entirely with AMC and Regal Cinemas. And your stock price this year is down about 12% year to date. So again, not terrible given that your exposure could be a lot worse. Um, But also, you know, what would you tell investors about when you might see, you know, a better ROI? Do we just have to wait this thing out? Are there, you know, bright spots even, as you mentioned, in August with 94% of rents paid? Uh, Do you think we're turning a corner here? Um, If you look at the trend lines, you know, and we've been sharing our monthly information in terms of rent collection starting in April, um, every month our rent collection numbers have improved. And this is a testament to um, the, the tenants that actually construct our overall portfolio and their businesses have improved. Even the theater business, um, uh, there was a, uh, a, a um, news that I saw earlier today that um, um, almost the vast majority of the AMC theaters are going to be opened on Friday. A hundred uh, AMC theaters have opened and that has translated into high rent collection. Hmm. If you look at our own stock performance and you see how we've done, um, we we had traded off quite a bit more. Uh, we were down into the into the 
high 50s. And uh, we have started the recovery process. And so we feel very good that we have turned the corner. Uh, the businesses are starting to improve. It's translating into higher rent collections for us. And so um, yeah. things are looking up. So let me then ask you if you can shed some insight about what's happening across the country. Are you guys positioned and experiencing this flight to the suburbs? And do you think it's going to last? Yeah, uh, you know, our geographic footprint, again, like you said, 49 states, Puerto Rico and the UK, uh, given the nature of our business, our properties tend to not be in dense metropolitan areas like Manhattan. So migration to suburbs should be a net positive for us. Uh, people do appear to be prioritizing additional space and spending money on their homes as evidenced through the strong performance of Home Depot, one of our top tenants. I don't think we subscribe to the notion that dense urban areas are forever changed, but I can speak to what we've seen within our portfolio and our non-discretionary and low price point retail, much of which is located in suburban and rural areas, continue to perform very well. For example, a large portion of our dollar store exposures are property leased to Dollar General, located in suburban or rural areas of the south southeastern United States, and Dollar General continues to perform well. It's a very similar story with 7-Eleven. A lot of our properties are in Texas, in suburban areas, and they've continued to perform very well. Uh, so while we absolutely monitor and anal analyze macro trends such as suburbanization to inform our investment and portfolio allocation decisions, our primary focus is creating a defensive real estate portfolio mm. that can not only survive but thrive through any economic environment. And I believe our portfolio has displayed these characteristics throughout this pandemic-induced downturn. Yeah, I know. I can tell the thought and deliberation that you put into it. It comes across. Sumit, thanks for joining me today. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Kelly. Sumit Roy is the CEO of Realty Income, ticker O. Coming up, let the betting begin. The gaming sector rallying across the board today as football kicks off tonight. And investors are placing bets on who will cash in. We'll look at who's best positioned. Plus, their products are in your kitchen, your bathroom, and your office, and their stock is at a 52-week high. We'll speak with the CEO of Aptar Group, who's seen demand skyrocket during the pandemic. Coming up. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's check on the markets right now. A calmer day than we've seen in several. The Dow's down 68 points. It's back to being the underperformer. S&P's down 6 to 33.92. And the Nasdaq is eking out a small gain of about 13 points, like Dom mentioned, top of the hour. Some slight rebounds in some of the more momentum-heavy names that we've been watching here of late. We've got some breaking news out of Washington. Let's get right to that with Kayla Tausche. Kayla, what's happening? 
Kelly, the Senate failed to advance the Republicans' targeted COVID relief bill. In a vote that closed just moments ago, there were 52 yeas, 47 nays, and 60 yes votes were needed. This essentially sends Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and the Republicans back to the drawing board. They had hoped to pass this and advance the bill and at least get approval in the Senate and challenge House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to take it up in the House or meet them at the negotiating table with some sort of compromise. Because this did not advance, it essentially leaves the ball in Republicans' court uh, to huddle themselves, find something where they can compromise and where they would have 60 votes to move forward, and then fig figure it out from there. Kelly, it also comes at a time when the Treasury Secretary yesterday expressed some pessimism about moving forward uh, in any form on relief, saying that they were focused on a clean bill to fund the government beyond September 30th, so essentially putting all the eggs in that basket uh, in lieu of any sort of larger agreement on this relief plan. We'll have more for you as it comes. Kelly, All right. back to you. Kayla, thank you very much. Kayla Tausche with the latest there. Let's turn to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Sue. Thank you very much, Kelly. There's a lot going on at this hour, everybody. The WHO's chief scientist is calling AstraZeneca's delay in their phase three coronavirus vaccine trial a, quote, wake up call. The WHO hopes that vaccine trial will resume soon, but says it must wait for more info from an independent safety review board. Calling it the biggest aviation challenge in history, the International Air Transport Association says providing a single dose of vaccine to 7.8 billion people will require 8,000 Boeing 747s. Among the other major concerns cited by the IATA are the availability of temperature-controlled facilities, trained staff, and monitoring capabilities. For the first time since 1986, sales of vinyl records have surpassed those of CDs. Consumers spent $232 million on records in the first half of 2020, beating the nearly $130 million spent on CDs. Vinyl sales have been steadily climbing since 2005, so don't throw them away. And the Atlanta Braves scored 29 runs in a victory against the Miami Marlins last night. Atlanta topped the old mark of 23 runs scored by the Milwaukee Braves in 1957, setting a new franchise and NL Modern Era record. You are up to date, Kel. That's the news update this hour. Back to you. All right, Sue. Thank you very much. Sue Herrera. Shares of K-12 are a leading online education platform, dropping today on news that the board of Miami-Dade County Public Schools voted to end its agreement with the school program, which is run by K-12. Miami-Dade is the fourth largest school district in the country. Still, K-12 is enjoying one of its best years on record. And Wall Street analysts are very bullish on the stock with an average price target of $50. It's trading around $30 today. Joining me now is Sean McGalman. He's president of Career Learning Solutions at K-12. Sean, it's great to have you. I mean, what an insane year. Uh, how much business have you picked up so far? Yeah, thanks for having me, Kelly. Uh, you know, K-12 has uh, been the leader in uh, virtual education in K-12 through grades for a number of years. Uh, this year, we'll have about 170,000 students uh, plus on our platforms. That's about 40% growth uh, over prior year. And, and I'll just say that the COVID pandemic has really sent more families to K-12 and our various uh, learning solutions, but it's also sent a number of school districts our way seeking a solution for literally hundreds of thousands of students uh, that are at home. So what would you tell investors who are concerned about this Miami decision today to end its uh, agreement with My School Online? Well, you know, Miami-Dade's one of those large school districts that's looking for a COVID solution. And uh, it was a complex solution with a very short time frame, which really became a Herculean task to solve. 
And so we weren't able to meet that complexity in the time that we had. But I will say that um, that that particular uh, um, installation won't have an impact on our financial position. I think it was a special project that was more about creating something new and innovative, uh, not about the bottom line. So, so again, no financial impact uh, on, uh, on the company. And by the way, we share uh, Superintendent Carvalho's vision for an innovative and blended learning solution. It's just going to take time to develop. Uh, but, you... but that said, also, I mean, we've, we've got a number of other school district relationships we've managed over the years and number that we're adding during COVID. Yeah, and, and kind of on that in that vein, where do you see online learning going in the next couple of years? Because, you know, if we all get a, you know, a vaccine or a pandemic solution, we can go back to, to normal. Is it going to look like it used to look or is the genie out of the bottle now with online learning? Yeah, I think online learning is 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 picking up steam. It's becoming more normal. And I believe that most school districts, school districts around the country will have an online uh, learning solution uh, that, that essentially, um, you know, ensures against what's happened now with the pandemic. So, so I think it's moving in the direction of, of uh, more normal than um, not. Yeah. And unfortunately, there are many people who don't want that to be the case. I mean, it's everything from those who don't have access to the technology to parents who are struggling with how to have their students, you know, get through the assignments to kids who just I mean, you probably know as well as anybody, it's, it's hard if you're a seven-year-old to kind of sit there and learn in front of a screen all day. Yeah, it's complex, uh, but, but it's, it's necessary, you know, and, and I think that we've always looked at, at the virtual environment being uh, one that actually should have some blended or face-to-face -face, uh, element uh, at, to, to make sure that that socialization stays alongside uh, the technology. But what, what we're finding, I mean, my, my you know, focus is typically on workforce development. And, and I see COVID highlighting a need for, you know, much more pandemic-proof training and career development over time. Um, uh, you know, the country saw 40% of, of individuals making $40,000 a year or less lose their jobs in March, which is significant. So with that said, you know, we're preparing students today on that virtual platform with skills uh, needed from modern workplace. But we're all working virtually in teams. Uh, on, on projects, and that's exactly what we're doing with in the platform with younger students today. So these are vital skills that are not just necessary sort of pandemic-wise, but necessary for uh, a future modern workplace. Yeah, so we're going to see it, you know, at, kind of in school and then even in the workplace, like you said, it, pushing into the adult and corporate training markets as well. Sean, thanks Absolutely. for joining me. Appreciate it very much. Yeah, thanks, Kelly. Sean McGalman is president of K-12 uh, learning solutions. The NFL is still the king of advertising, and as the season kicks off, a lot of money for a number of stocks is riding on its success. We're going to look at who's got the most at stake. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are Julia Borston, Dominic Chu, and Contessa Brewer. It's great to see you all. Let's begin with shares of Restoration Hardware's parent company, RH, which are on pace for their best day since March after they reported results that beat on the top and bottom line. They doubled free cash flow, expanded margins to more than 20%, and have seen year-over-year -year demand improve every single month, Dom, since May. This is very high-priced stuff. How can they operate and achieve such scale? 
luxury spending, luxury margins, people spending more time at home. It's like the perfect set of tailwinds for what's happening with RH right now. Yeah, this is premium price product for sure, but those premium price products always come with higher margins, and that's what RH is benefiting from. What I found curious about the whole situation here was we've talked about you know, a lot about Home Depot and these other companies benefiting Sherwin-Williams for home, home improvement. Well, RH actually says that they see these spending on home trends continuing for the rest of the year and into 2021 as well. Mm -hmm. So this could be, yes, just the beginning mm -hmm. of more stuff down the line. But I wonder if a 20% rise in the stock well, price is probably re reflecting that at this point. Fair here. enough. I mean, Julia, I think it's going to continue to 2021 because you can only buy one thing a year from RH. I mean, if you want to deck out your house, <laughs> like if you move to the suburbs, we moved three years ago and we're just finishing the dining room. Well, again, I mean, you are talking a lot today about people moving to the suburbs, so you have to wonder how much moving is part of that. But I guess, Kelly, my real question is, how much of these purchases, especially the fact that we saw a 47% increase in August, how much of these purchases are a pull forward from purchases that might be happening later this year, earlier next year, because people are so desperate to make their homes, their home offices comfortable and cozy since they're not going anywhere else? And how much of this really is a sustainable trend? And I think a lot of that might depend on the strength of the consumer yeah. just as much as it does the fact that people are stuck at home. No, it's a good point. And Contessa, I am a little wary of all of these companies who say, you know, hey, we're going to, this is the new normal. And it's like, look, you've just had like the biggest gift of all time handed to you in a way, you know, is, should you not expect some kind of hangover? That, that's right. But if you look at what's happening with uh, Bed Bath & Beyond or Overstock just today alone, it's no surprise that when you're spending a lot of time at home, and even those who have gone back to work are still having come off of this time when you were looking around at your blank walls and going, boy, I really hate this place. You know what would make it better? A Yeti sheepskin sectional. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, this is why everybody's um, uh, uh, benefiting from it. But at this point, if you're going to um, look at the, the spend, is that going to continue in 2021 or once we get our homes all remodeled, right. then we're done with it and we don't have any more money we and go back to uh, ramen noodles? Exactly. And I would throw Pinterest in there as well, because, you know, when you're picking things out, it's all this holistic thing, like the new rooms, the new furniture. You want to test it out, see how it looks. Uh, just an incredible day for RH after a couple of years of kind of this strategy shift. Uh, be sure to catch Mad Money with Jim Cramer tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern. He's going to have an exclusive interview with RH CEO Gary Friedman. Uh, we look forward to more detail coming out of that. Next up, Penn National Gaming is getting a nod from Wall Street today from Rosenblatt Securities, initiating coverage of the stock with a buy and a street-high price target of $80 a share. That's up 25% from current levels. They're saying they have a chance to gain significant share in online sports betting because of the physical footprint and, drumroll please, the partnership with Barstool. The shares up about 10% today, Contessa, up more than 1,600% from their March low. Just amazing. I, I mean, what we're seeing with Penn's moves, it is amazing, and it's, and it's attention-getting. And I don't think it's misplaced when you look at what the partnership with Barstool brings to the table. They've got more than 60 million subscribers, so Penn's cost of switching those to gamblers is much lower than what it's going to be for all of its competitors. Here you have the analyst, Bernie McTiernan, arguing that content is king, and Penn is best positioned to drive the growth based on that content because of its partnership with Barstool. It's not the only partnership we've seen. Look at DraftKings, up more than 300% yeah. since January. And it has, uh, it and FanDuel are really sharing the dominant space nationwide in sports gambling, in iGaming. In fact, we just heard that from uh, FanDuel CEO yesterday. 
And here you have William Hill also making a move, partnering with Caesars. They just broke um, the ground on, or just cut the ribbon on their studio with ESPN yesterday, hmm. NBC Sports, and PointsBet. The content here and those partnerships with sports gambling are going to be super important moving forward. I know. And Dom, maybe it's just me, but I don't love it. I don't love watching sports and getting bombarded with all the betting ads and all the stuff all the time, but I understand I'm in the minority on that. Here's what I would tell you. I, I'm actually a person who enjoys gambling, but I wonder how big the market can be. At this point right now, the optimism being priced into these stocks reflects this idea that you might have to lower the gambling age to like 13 to get as many people out there gambling as you think there were. I mean, they already listen, have. the pie's, the me, pie's the only so big, old, Kelly. They know how to do it. They're not just on fantasy. They know how to do it. All right, let's stick with sports for a second because the NFL season is kicking off tonight and there's a lot at stake, not just for the league, for its advertisers, for the TV networks. Julia, how much are we talking here? We're talking about $4.5 billion in terms of ads for the whole season up through the Super Bowl. $3 billion just in regular season advertising. That adds up to $175 million in ads a week for the regular season. And Kelly, what's so amazing about this situation is that every one of the media giants has a lot riding on the Super Bowl. You have, I mean, I'm sorry, on the, on the NFL season uh, leading up to the Super Bowl. <laughs> so there's just so much at stake here in terms of CBS, which is owned by Viacom CBS. You have ESPN, which is, of course, Disney. You have NBC, CNBC's parent company. And then you also have the NFL Network and Fox. So all of these companies are really hoping that the regular season happens as planned because there's just so much on the line. And, it, Kelly, it's not just advertising dollars for the games themselves, but these networks are increasingly relying on these games to drive viewers to other programming because, remember, a lot of the regular fall shows have been delayed. They haven't been able to produce them because yeah. of the COVID shutdown. And Dom, I wonder how many people cut the cord uh, over the summer, what we're going to find out about ratings. And you let the cat out of the bag a little bit on Twitter, my friend, because I saw your kind of like hesitation over whether you're into it. You know, the Chiefs, we got Mahomes, whether you're even into it as much as you might have been. Uh, and the, so the context around that tweet, Kelly, was about whether I was going to invest the time in my fantasy football draft, <laughs> right. which happened last night. Now, normally I don't auto draft. I do a lot of homework, just like I do for the market stuff that we do every day. I research. <laughs> things. I try to put these teams together. But this year, I just don't know if the season's actually going to happen in full and, and, and completely. Do I really want to invest that kind of time? That was kind of like the driving force behind that tweet. <laughs> but I would say this, to, to Julia's point, the biggest issue that I have right now with regard to the advertising picture is whether or not, yes, we know that people are going to be watching the NFL, but are advertisers actually going to be spending that kind of money? We've already heard over the past six months that many advertisers have actually cut their advertising but budgets. So more eyeballs, does it lead to more spending? I don't know. Quick last word, Julia. <laughs> well, so, well, Dom, I have heard, we talked to CBS, and they said that their ad rates, their ad purchases for this season is very much in line with last year, and last year their numbers were huge. You have to remember, Dom, there is not a lot of other content on TV right now and a lot of built-up anticipation for football. I just like, it goes back, the whole Mike Santoli, like there's going to be an index fund for fantasy football players. This is the year, I think. He should launch it. Anyway, uh, be sure to watch the Super Bowl champs, the Chiefs, take on the Houston Texans tonight as the season kicks off on NBC, speaking of which, with coverage beginning at 7 p.m. Eastern time. And finally, this has been the talk of the town. A new piece in the New York Times looks at the rise of corporate parenting perks that are being offered by tech companies in particular as their employees continue to work from home. The employees without children are saying, what about us, Contessa? What, what's fair here? Uh, one, 
you have Facebook employees <laughs> complaining even though everybody got their bonuses no matter how they were performing. What's there to complain about? I feel like the people who are complaining on one hand, I mean, I look, this oh, is what I'm dealing are. with oh. in the middle of my work day, <laughs> right? This was actually at a live shot at a funeral home where I'm trying to talk to the funeral. And here's my son saying, hey, who wants vodka? I look up from my computer and there's the liquor cabinet open. The superheroes always manage to break in. My question is, do these people not realize there's the makeup job they did on me? You know, they were helping me with makeup. Do these people not realize they're lucky to have a job, number one? And number two, life's not fair. Yeah, I can, Dom, I can totally understand it's sparking some resentment. And I can, I also think there might be something inherently good in that. Reminds me of when I was a freshman on the college lacrosse team and they were like, you guys have to go get all the balls. And when you've earned it, you know, in a couple of years, you stick around, the next crop of freshmen, they'll go get the balls for you. Like, maybe it's okay to say, like, if you've earned it, you've, you've got, I know it's not corporate related, but it still is. You know, there's like, you get a perk for being a parent. It's hard. To me, it, it really does. And, I, and I'll take a, a slightly maybe darker view of this whole thing. What this whole story tells you, there's a, there's a growing disparity between the people who can actually work from home and get those perks and the people who actually actually have to go out of their homes and go into the, to their jobs, whether they're doing something, Aww, you know, in terms of kid. retail or anything else. So that's my son, Jack, who's kind of, you know, studying right now with his black and white books. That's apparently what's appropriate this age. Yeah, like you know, my daughter's old. learning yeah. how to, to, to cut. <laughs> she's got these like play knives that doesn't they don't they don't cut her, but they can cut fruit. But I mean, Dom, she's learning how to listen, cook and everything. I, else. I take your point about the but we're talking about within the same company. You know, we're not talking about the people who, you know, are we're talking about the same company, same situation, but the people who or see the, what all the parents get to do, go, hey, I'm not sure that's fair. Well, I mean, you, you can say that, but, but here's what I would say. If that makes you want to go out and have kids, I think that's probably the wrong motivator for why you'd want to do it. So <laughs> if, you want, if, you, if you really want to get those perks, just go have a family and then see what happens. Yeah, I mean, Julia, will give you the last word. Look, I think everyone just needs to be compassionate and empathetic right now. It's hard. This is hard for everyone. It's not fun to be spending 24 hours a day with your kids trying to take care of them. I know that mine come in the room um, if my door isn't locked and it's really hard. And, it, you know, you can't capture those moments when you're like running out the door. Oh, that's me with my son this morning, um, my very messy desk. And he'll like walk in with a cat and you just you just never know when you're going to have a kid walk through the door. It's not relaxing. I'll put it that way. But I think everyone needs to be empathetic. And it's just surprising, even at Twitter, where there's unlimited pain time off, the employees there are still fighting with each other about this. So everyone needs to just relax and feel grateful that they have well, any time. I think it was uh, any time. It was unfair. We didn't include someone, you know, one of the uh, one of our younger people here. To, you know, look at all of us who go. Yeah, it's hard for parents. I want to hear one of them say, yeah, whatever. Hey, Kelly, you know, it makes you think we get to go to the studio every day. I know. I know. People in the neighborhood are very jealous. I will tell you that. God bless CNBC for keeping us safe. Thank you all. Julia Borston, Dom Chu, Contessa Brewer for Rapid Fire today. Coming up, it's the company that brought you the upside down ketchup bottle and spray sunscreen. They've been pumping up production, and that's a hint from one of their key products in the pandemic, but they can't do it fast enough. The stock is up double digits in the past six months. The CEO of Aptar Group is going to join us next to talk about all of those trends. And happening today at 2 p.m. Eastern, CNBC's Inclusion and Action Forum examines how business leaders can take immediate concrete action addressing racial disparities in their organizations and to create sustainable solutions to allow for equity and opportunity for all. It's a partnership with the Executive Leadership Council. The event will feature conversations with industry leaders, and you can register at cnbcevents.com slash inclusion. We're back in two.
Welcome back. A surge in demand for hand sanitizers and related products has led to a global shortage of the hand pumps used to dispense them, most of which come from China. It's led companies to turn to the American firm Aptar Group for help. Aptar has seen sales of its dispensers double this year due to the pandemic. Its shares are up 13% in six months, and it's adding up to 20% of extra capacity next year to keep up with demand. To be here to talk more about it, let's welcome in Aptar Group's president and CEO, Stefan Tanda. Stefan, it's great to have you. Welcome. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having us and hope you and your team are doing well. Thank you. We're, I recognize a number of your products here, uh, some of which I have in my own house. Uh, so you, you guys are absolutely a household name, even if many haven't heard of you. How rare is it for there to be a Western producer of hand pumps and how much of a boon has that been for business this year? Well, it's uh, not our largest product line and clearly um, mass product production has uh, gone to lower cost countries, but certainly more premium products and premium brands, our technology and the consumer experience that enables uh, is, is quite popular. And as, as you said, uh, we have uh, been coping with additional demand and have to make additional investments to ramp up not only hand sanitizer pumps, but also sprays and other ways to uh, use hand sanitizer. People get very creative, including using uh, traditional beverage closures uh, to dispense hand sanitizer. Yes, and I see here that some of the large fragrance customers like LVMH and L'Oreal and Cody turned to you guys to come up with these technologies to make sure that they could distribute uh, the hand sanitizers that they were making during the pandemic. What's kind of customer demand like now? Are people still needing to make this product as much as they were six months ago? And how long do you expect that to continue? Well, we've certainly seen uh, demand go up structurally by about 20% or so. Um, some brands are still hard to get a hold of, but uh, if you do a, a check on the popular online websites now, you can get most of these products. But given the change in consumer behavior, our awareness of the risks around us, uh, we certainly see structurally higher demand here um, for hand sanitizer, but not only that, also uh, hand cream, hand lotions, you gotta soothe those hands if you wash them 10 times a day. And uh, overall cleaning disinfecting is clearly a growth industry now. So final question to you, why do you think it is, I I actually thought your share price might do better because all of the pandemic plays have had these huge runs. Um, What do you think accounts for that? What would you say to investors right now? Well, uh, Aptar is really a a larger company. Um, A substantial part of our business is actually in pharma. So we are also increasing demand for vaccine uh, components. Uh, Hand pumps are not our largest business. And uh, one of our leader products is, of course, pumps for luxury fragrances that were purchased in duty-free stores and luxury uh, retail outlets that Mm -hmm. have been closed for a number of months now. Yeah, and so understood. So even as some parts of the business are booming, there are others that have been hurt by the pandemic, as with so many companies. Stefan, thank you for joining us to talk about it. So fascinating to hear about it. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Kelly. He is the CEO and president of Aptar Group. Coming up, take a look at these pictures. This is what the Bay Area looks like right now as wildfires rage across California. We're going to bring you the very latest next. Welcome back. Deadly wildfires continue to rage across the West, fueled by heat and high winds, killing at least eight people already. Aditi Roy joins me now with the very latest. Aditi? 
Hi, Kelly. It is hard to believe that it's nearly 11 o'clock in the morning here, and what would normally be a bright, sunny sky is now filled with smoky clouds. Let's take a look at the shot of the fires from space. You can see the smoke cover extends all across the country. In California alone, more than two dozen wildfires have burned more than two and a half million acres. That's a record, and 20 times more than the acres burned at this time last year. In the Bay Area yesterday, the fires resulted in a dark orange-colored sky, images of the apocalyptic scene filling up social media. The California wildfires have caused eight de deaths, destroyed 3,700 structures, and prompted PG&E to shut off power to nearly 200,000 residents to prevent more blazes. Most of those homes, though, have the lights back on. Fires are also threatening communities in Washington state and in Oregon. The governor there calling the state's fire threat unprecedented as investigators there look into whether a utility's downed power lines are to blame for one of the wildfires. And Kelly, here in California, to die down today, the humidity is supposed to increase. I can tell that right now, and that'll all help firefighters. It's also cooled off quite a bit this weekend. It was in the triple digits. Yeah, still it's astonishing after all the wildfire damage we've seen in the last couple of years that now this is one of the worst episodes, especially, like you said, for Oregon and Washington State. Aditi, thank you very much. Aditi Royal, continue to follow it for us. And that does it for us here on The Exchange today. Don't go anywhere. Coming up next hour, we'll talk about why Tesla could get a boost from a Biden presidency. The analyst behind that call joins us live on Power Lunch. Tesla shares up 3% today. I'll see you on the other side of this quick break with Tyler Matheson. Stay with us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.